You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and for listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Ryan, speaking of the Patreon page, I know we've got a new patron this week. I want to welcome Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, don't forget, if you want to keep this uh, podcast going strong, then you can do so by helping us out by becoming a patron. I'll get to it. Uh, if, if you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Uh, you get to be part of a, an exclusive patrons only live chat during the broadcast of each new episode of the curse of oak island i love that chat uh and again guys five bucks a month cancel any time let's get this podcast started uh i love to start these off with the emails and messages my favorite part of the show and we got a couple of doozies here today so <clears throat> we only got three but one of them's something i think you're uh, a few of you are going to be really interested in so let's start off with Bernie, our old friend Bernie, who we haven't heard from in a little bit. Uh, he says, hi, Dave. So I feel like I've written you enough that you know that I'm a bit of a dreamer when it comes to this show. I love any new theories, field trips, and new technology. However, there was something during this show that really piqued my interest, and it happened really quickly. When they were in the interpretive center uh, getting the magnetometer data from Lot 5, Laird said, yeah, it's exciting. That really made me excited from listening to him on the show and on your pod, he seems like a no-nonsense kind of person, and for him to say that, it has to mean something. That show made a big deal of Aladdin's cave. I don't know if that will ever amount to anything or not. Maybe they can put a big borehole down and let a diver go down like they have done before. Either way, what Laird said will always be more interesting to me. What has always fascinated me about the show is the story. Treasure or no treasure, I don't really care to me. The story behind what went on at Oak Island will always be what is important. And I think they're getting closer to that every day. Thanks for keeping up with the pod. I hope you and yours are doing well, Bernie. Bernie, first of all, I hope you and yours are doing well as well. Uh, it is always great to hear from you. Um, and let me just say this to answer your questions. I don't speak for Laird and I really can't, but I do know from talking to him that, yeah, he is excited about the work being done on Lot 5. Here's the thing. <laughs> Laird's not in it for a treasure. He doesn't measure success or excitement based on whether or not there's a treasure. He's an archaeologist. He's in this for the history, and sp specifically the history of his homeland, right, of Nova Scotia, where he, was, where he lives. And I think he would agree with me when I say that the evidence is at least mounting that something significant happening on Oak Island, and that was lost to history. That is exactly what a guy like Laird Niven gets excited about. Not about history or treasure and anything like that, about history, especially lost history. Treasure or no treasure, if they can find something like that here that's going to get an archaeologist excited about his work. And yes, he is excited about what they're looking at here, and I am too. Well, the fact that we have no record of a house on this lot, so what is this then exactly? Maybe it all turns out to be nothing, but until we confirm that it's nothing, this work is exciting. It's great stuff, Bernie. Great positive attitude. I love that about you. Always great to hear from you. Have a wonderful holiday. Let's hear now from another old friend of ours, Steve, who says, hey, Dave, 
Hi there. Uh, Hope that you and the family are well and ramping up for great holiday season. Just a few thoughts that may be interesting to the diggers. Your listeners need a nickname. (laughs) I like that, Steve. Uh, While it's a notable and time-consuming to achieve, I did want to note something about Freemasonry. The show makes it a point of highlighting that Scott Clark, this is the guy who had came in with the theory about William Phipps, uh, is a 32nd degree Freemason. But that doesn't mean that he knows any more about Oak Island than any of the other 2 million Freemasons in the United States. Anything he knows about Oak Island is due to his hard work researching the topic. Being a 32nd degree Mason, in quotes, just means he's part of the Masonic Scottish Rite and has been recognized for achieving the 32nd degree. The showrunners are playing this up to generate some sort of gravitas around his theories and to tie it to Freemasonry and the Templars. Two, to reiterate on Sam on Sir William Phipps, the fact that something found on Oak Island is materially like something at Phipps's home in Maine doesn't mean anything that happened on Oak Island is connected to him. This would be like finding an iPhone on Oak Island and then concluding William Phipps had an iPhone. He must have been on Oak Island. Correlation without causation. Three, I'm still not ready to let go of 10X. I know there's a lot of emotion around the borehole and its importance or lack thereof. Still, a floating hand, a body on the ground, gold embedded in the shaft walls, and it's not all that far from the garden shaft. Just because the tunnel appears to run from Smith's Cove to the garden shaft and beyond doesn't mean there's not a side tunnel. Four, I'm curious what they've gotten away from drop that they've gotten away from dropping big cans. I assume it's expensive, but ROC equipment, rock equipment, could probably drop an eight-inch can into the ba- or eight-foot can into the baby blob in like a day or two. Why drop so many six-inch test holes instead? I get gathering data points, but they appear to have already dropped dozens into both the blob and the baby blob. And finally, maybe I'm forgetting, but Tom Nolan always says, "quote the answers in the swamp," uh, but I don't think they had done anything in the swamp in the first six episodes. All in all. Uh, all in on lot five, you're right. Sorry. Hope there are a lot of shipwreck coins and Oak Island books under the tree for you this year. Best, Steve. Steve, uh, let me go through these a little bit point by point here, right? First, the 32nd degree Mason thing about Scott Clark. Thank you for that. Your um, your take here is exactly what I expected, but it's nice to have somebody else confirm that for us. Um, how the show insists on always correlating Freemasons and Templars has always been a sticking point with me. I've talked to Templar experts who tell me it's just people just do that for fun. <laughs> and on that second point about William Phipps, I mean, Steve, uh, you're, you're, you're dumping on my dreams here. Come on. Jeez, man. Now, as far as the 10X goes, talked about, I have a little theory on that. I think that John Chatterton found and reported to the team from after his die from what that, I'm sorry, I think what John Chatterton found and reported to the team from after his dive into 10X a few years back was probably more devastating to the 10X theory than even what we actually got to see here right on the show. And Rick and Marty all but crossed it off their list as a result. The show does not like to tell us these things, right? They don't like to tell us when something's debunked, Uh, you know, when things are, you know, in fact, they're really good at that, right? At keeping that kind of thing from the viewers and making the viewer think the opposite, that maybe it's still hanging out there. In my opinion, and I have no evidence to back it, that's what's going on with me in 10X. And the reason why we haven't seen that, because when Chatterton went down there, he just found nothing, you know, and he convinced him of that. The guys have seen enough 
here to convince them that it's not part of the mystery and it's not worth the time and effort. As far as the big caissons go, I think they may have been shelved in favor of the garden shaft work. That's my guess. Either for financial reasons or safety, really, or just space over there. These two things probably can't happen at once. Uh, this equipment both of those companies bring in, bring in are huge, and that space just isn't that big. And finally, as far as I know, uh, we are going to see work done at the Swamp this season. Let's see if I'm correct. All right. Let me finish up with an email um, that pertains to something from last week that our friend Gary from the Pittsburgh Pirates Fan Forum podcast sent to us. Uh, he began sending us down the road of possible issues, issues with carbon dating. So this week, out of nowhere, I received this email. Hello, my name is David Neeson, and recently I was told about and listened to your recent podcast, which touched upon the issue of radiocarbon dating of artifacts on Oak Island. This is one of the critical research topics, as I have written a two-volume forensic scientific book about. I do not seek theory-based evidence, but history and biological-based evidence. Though mundane, even arcane, this research has shown the best promise in identifying the who, what, when, from where, how, and why. I won't pump the self-promotion until the bottom of the email should you want to investigate. My good friend, Gordon Fader, who is honored and acknowledged in the front of our second volume, is generally correct about his answer, but he, ser he served you a salad of radiocarbon dating anomalies, and the quoted article he cites is less involved with the issues of dating on Oak Island than it implies. Oftentimes, when information or artifacts cough up untidy truths, we become very skeptical and search out to destroy those truths, a common human trait even among scientists, especially archaeologists and geologists. My expertise in this conversation regards radiocarbon dating of the coconut core fiber and the eelgrass, both of which have been dated by the Laginas and earlier. Much of my work has been addressing the coconut core fiber, which is so poorly understood in these, tre in these treasure enigma, or in this treasure enigma. It has taken much to prove negatives to highlight to those truly interested in solving the puzzle. Is the coconut fiber is the only true and examinable evidence which proves of man-made constructs in Oak Island, and those constructs are very old. Even the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute offers only four reasons for it being there. We prove the first three are fallacies, and the fourth is the correct answer from ancient voyagers. Let me regroup and quit with the excitement as you're already addicted to this conundrum, so I don't need to push it. Beta Labs, uh, aka Beta Analytics, has been radiocarbon testing most all of the data, uh, datable artifacts submitted by Oak Island searchers since 1990. They are a renowned lab that I have seen them in being involved in dating artifacts throughout the world's archaeological digs conducted by many institutions. I have talked to the president several times regarding the mitigating factors affecting core fiber on Oak Island specifically. With providing him the historical record on these mitigation relevant mitigations, I'm sorry, relevant to Oak Island, he has assured the datings are accurate. These mitigations are contamination by petroleum products, chronic carbon dioxide exposure from volcanic eruptions, coconut redding process, constant submersion or saturation in a saltwater environment, the blue carbon effect, and the recalibration of inbuilt factors using the 993 CE cosmic ray-induced upsurges in atmospheric radiation affecting primarily the northern hemispheres. I hope you're all following this, guys. The latter technical advance clinched the dating of the Viking settlement in Newfoundland. <laughs> 
the radiocarbon dating of the coconut core fiber, the reddled husk fiber covering of the nut of the cocoa nucifera, for those of you who are into the Latin of coconuts, over the years from th- from three different sources, those dates include 810 v. 855, 1130 v. 1229, 1880 through 1278, 1185, and 1380 or 1330 AD. The V indicates the date was changed to a latter date after recalibration. So to explain, in the test shown above, 1130 V 1229, this specimen date was updated to 1229 AD. The earliest year specimen date, 810 to 855 AD, is tossed as an outlier, which leaves 1180, 1185, 1229, 1278, and 1330 AD as the official radiocarbon test dates of the fibers submitted to WHOI for review and analytics. WHOI tossed out their tested specimen, which radiocarbon tested to 1185, as they assumed it must have been a subset of the specimen previously tested as 1180 AD. Therefore, the window of radiocarbon AMS tested coconut core fiber became 1180 or 1229 through 1330, or more exciting, 1229, or more exacting, 1229 through 1130 AD. Now, he then goes into, um, Mr. Neeson then goes into a bunch of different books that he's done, and he writes this, the books below delve into the extensive research and examination on these datings as all the further forensic investigation centers on this timeline. So to the point of my email, unlike Wood, which truly needs to be dendro examined to ascertain any date of a value greater than 300 years, especially exposed to UV light, redded coconut fiber core is a plant fiber which can accurately be dated with 95% certainty and is not affected by the different mitigators which affect wood. The eelgrass, on the other hand, has in fact been mitigated by the new factors shown in blue carbon uptake and should be reinvestigated to better ascertain its actual age. This is the stuff found in Smith's Cove by the Laginas. If you are interested in learning more about this research and realize why this is the key to answering the Oak Island Enigma, I I suggest you start out with a short read. Please go to either www.oakislandmysteryfiber.com and read our 60-page white paper sent to palm experts around the world to explain the question, is it really coconut fiber or is it date palm fiber? This can also be found at Amazon. Then he goes on to talk about a couple of different books he's written, Oak Island Mystery Trees and Forensic Answers, another one called Oak Island Mystery Trees and Forensic Answers Compendium. Uh, and these talk about the he talks about the different questions they answer through this. So it gives you a really good, Dave, um, Mr. Neeson gives you a really good opportunity to kind of go through some of these things. And I'll certainly have this information for you if you want to go dig into this yourself. Um, He does suggest you read that 60-page paper. Um, And then he writes, finally, if you haven't yet gagged on all this fiber stuff, I can be seen on the Ghosts of Bacon podcast by simply typing in my name in the YouTube search bar. I'll get it. If there is anything else I can answer or argue about of illustrations, please don't hesitate to ask. This effort... Though talked about in James McQuiston's last two books, is not about book sales, but an attempt to actually determine answers and understandings of the real artifacts found in the island, especially the 1.54 metric tons of palm fiber. Enjoy, David H. Neeson. 
Mr. Neeson, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for that, for taking the time to write all that. I can't tell you I understand it all. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of people on here who do. And let me say this, guys. If you're somebody who wants to dig a little deeper into this email and maybe have it on your own, I, I, I'm Mr. Neeson, I'm sure, will allow me to send it to you. So just drop me a line, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Um, I think this is just the beginning of our process here of trying to better understand this dating situation. Not sure I understood, again, all of what he wrote here, but I know there are plenty of people listening who do, so we will be in touch with you, Mr. Neeson, for sure. This sounds like a good future podcast topic to me. Uh, anyway, okay, that's all for the emails today. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along, Island at gmail.com. It is time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 7 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Great Flood. Now, just like last week, there actually isn't a whole lot here to discuss. Don't get me wrong. I really, really enjoyed this episode. I really did. But it was kind of a nuts and bolts episode. You know, this is really um, a real example of reality TV here as it dealt mostly with the process of what they're doing rather than the history and findings and theories and that kind of stuff. So let's start on Lot 5. We begin discussing Lot 5 with blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg coming to the Interpretive Center to check out some artifacts found there mostly last week at the circular feature. The first one he looks at is a nail. He identifies it as a scupper nail from a ship, I suppose. This show then tries really, really hard to somehow shoehorn William Phipps into all of this. I suppose because I had a boat and he made boats, you know. I'm pretty sure I don't need to say this, folks, but I think it's pretty fair to say that everyone who might have buried a treasure on Oak Island, every suspect, would have had to have a ship because it's an island for crying out loud. Listen, in fairness, Phipps is the theory du jour going on right now and probably for the foreseeable future and with good reason. So I but I just hope all of this forced Phipps talk here. Let me say that again. Forced Phipps talk here somehow pays off in the end, right? Because we're really getting beaten with it now, even in places where it's uh, not easy to see the connection. You'll see what I mean in a second. The next thing that they show Carmen is a strange handle. Uh, it's like the end of a type of, this is the thing we saw last week, had two holes punched in it. Carmen tells us it's the handle from a ladle. And again, we start talking about William Phipps as if a ladle somehow is evidence that William Phipps was here to bury your treasure. Again, they're doing everything they can to keep Phipps at the top of our minds. Hopefully there's a good reason for that. In the end, these are both kind of cool items, but not sure if it's evidence of much besides coastal inhabitants, right? Which in itself could be evidence of, you know, something, right? More on that in a bit. Next, we had to head, next we head over to Lot 5 and see Jack Begley. Once again, he's here working with the archaeologists over at the circular feature. And the archaeologist Helen Sheldon tells Jack that they've found a few pipe stems, which is pretty interesting considering that the archaeologists have been for years puzzled by why they haven't found these things anywhere on the island. Now, all of a sudden, here they are. Helen also points out that they have not been finding as many nails, and that indicates to her that what they're looking at here, the foundation they're looking at, is for a building that probably was something like a log cabin. Next, Jamie Kuba finds what uh, looks to them like a strap handle for a door. But honestly, my eyes can't really see anything more than a clump of dirt here. And then there's an old rosehead nail. And again, the show really tries hard to shoehorn in Phipps. 
Mark on the Patreon commented, Phipps was also renowned for having door hinges. <laughs> now, Mark, I know you're trying to be funny, but let's think about this a bit more, about what they've been finding here and what it might mean. We have pipe stems, ladles, door straps, all possibly in a log cabin. To me, this indicates an inhabitant's. And one that's clearly been lost to treasure, a house, or, or sorry, to history. This is a house that's not documented. But does it sound like somebody who's coming here to secretly bury a treasure? I don't know. Question we're thinking about. All right, let's head now over to the Money Pit area where the episode begins with Rick and Marty heading over to go down into the garden shaft again. They meet with Roger 14, I think is how you say his name, from Dumas before going down into the shaft. And Roger tells them about how they're really struggling with water flooding into the shaft. As someone so interested in the history of the dig, hearing this conversation take place in front of us was absolutely fascinating. I know I've said this a lot about how many past searchers have had this exact conversation about this exact same problem. But this is what has plagued every single person who ever tried to dig down into the money pit and find the treasure. And here we are getting to see it play out in front of us. Really cool stuff. So this Roger man and Rick and Marty go down to the shaft and they see firsthand just how much water is really coming in. Um, And it's incredible, right? Despite the walls that they constructed last year. Roger explains that they plan to use like a urethane, essentially like a spray foam to see, you know, to put in between the planks, to seal in between the planks as much as they possibly can. In fact, he remarks that, quote, if I can get 50% of this water stopped, I'll be a happy man because yet again, water is making it very, very difficult, if not totally impossible for people to work in the money pit. The guys head down to the lowest platform, which I think they said was at 87 feet. And there's a lot of talk here about reaching the tunnel below. One of the brothers saying something like, it's right down there. But just remember, guys, the tunnel they're talking about is still another 20 feet down. It's not right there. (laughs) They also discuss again about how Dumas is planning on bringing down a horizontal probe drilling device, in quotes, to explore around the garden shaft, around the bottom of the garden shaft. And if they find a target, then they would be able to tunnel sideways to recover whatever that target is. All great sounding ideas, but again, they're not factoring in the water here. (laughs) It's not going to be easy to do that just because you brought down a drill, especially if whatever horizontal tunnel they're drilling into rapidly fills with water because it's not sealed like the garden shaft is. This is what happened to every single other person who tried to drill sideways or up and down in, uh, in on Oak Island for 225 years. Next, we see uh, a war room meeting, and this is with the doctors Ian Spooner, Matt Lukeman, and Fred Michael, and they've come to show them more results of water testing in the money pit. So essentially what they're saying here is that they're looking for traces of organic material that are out of place, right? Essentially looking for some evidence of man-made stuff, specifically wood. Um, at Borehole L16, the water sample, they report a cavity, which is Aladdin's cave, and they tell them that there's sample, the samples that they have show a lot of organic material suggesting um, wood is down there in the cave. Dr. Spooner says there is a quote unquote, no natural way to get the reading like this, a reading that Dr. Lukeman calls, and I'm going to tr- struggle with those anomalously high. 
who has to say anomalously every day. This caused John on the Patreon to remark, quote, no natural way to get wood at depth. What about glaciers or sinkholes? There's been many placed wood found at these depths, but it's not the only way it gets there, right? So, John, I would agree with you right with that, right? But I would also think these doctors would know how to factor that possibility into it. At least I hope so, right? Anyway, the obvious conclusion around the war room table is that they will drill down and have a closer look. And that's exactly what they do. So next we see Terry uh, Matheson and I think Charles Barkhouse over at the money pit beginning a new borehole uh, drilling down that they label KL 14.5. And this is aimed to get back into Aladdin's cave. So later on the episode, Terry is actually joined by an archaeologist named um, Moya McDonald as the drill enters the cave. First, he pulls out a sample. Not much there. Then the team comes in. Everybody comes in and they actually get down into the cave and they send a camera down to have a look. Now, initially, the images that we're getting here are really pretty clear and pretty cool. And they see what everyone hopefully opines might be a bolt right into one of the rocks certainly looks like some sort of flatter surface of, of some kind, but after blowing up the image myself and getting a better look, it really doesn't appear to be anything more than like a rock and maybe a shadow, right? But what do I know? I mean, even Marty Lagina remarks that he would, quote unquote, not call it definitive, that it's a bolt or something else man-made. Soon the images start to get cloudy from either the movement of the camera or it seems they believe it's from some something of a current down there which they act sort of surprised about, but that makes all the sense in the world to me, right? We know water moves around there. As we said last week, remember Marty's coin, right? We know it does. The camera then hits the bottom of the cave and we see more rocks and really nothing too far out of the ordinary or out of the ordinary at all. Now, the point of this hole that they're drilling here was to try and find wood that the doctors detected in water samples. Now, they certainly did not do that, right? They did not see anything here that looks like wood. But I think we have to keep in mind, even though some of these images are pretty clear, the range, the field of vision, the depth we get out of here is very shallow, right? Meaning they aren't seeing very far, just a few feet, I would imagine, because they just because they see no wood in these images doesn't mean it's not there, Either way, they're going to do another sonar scan in the area, but we don't get to see those results in this episode. But next, we see the narration talk about these serious storms uh, and the resulting flooding that Nova Scotia withstood last summer. It was catastrophic for parts of Nova Scotia. For those of you who don't remember, this was the end of July this past summer, and Lunenburg County, uh, where Oak Island is, was one of the worst affected areas of Nova Scotia. Look it up, guys, if you didn't hear about it. It's really amazing. The flooding was absolutely devastating. Um, crazy. It really was. Anyway, so the guys, with this in mind, the guys head back to the garden shaft right after these storms, and they speak again with this Roger 14 about the water in the shaft. He says that the flooding, the, the, the general idea we get here is that the flooding is basically out of control, and it's not because of the rain. They don't really seem to know why they're getting this kind of flooding. They have 33 feet of water, I think he said, in the shaft, and they're pumping it out every hour. Again, this is just the kind of thing I love to watch about this show, right? This right here, folks, this conversation, the entire history of the Oak Island treasure dig is unfolding once again right before our eyes. And they also point out the really, and it's really true, right? That this was not a problem last year 
when they first constructed all of this. It was dry when they were going down there, except for that very last scene at the end, which we think was the result of rain. Now, all of a sudden, uncontrollable flooding. Dumas is going to need to bring in some engineers and try to figure this all out. And 14 says, quote, we never expected nothing like this, end quote. Well, let me say this. Uh, this is proof. This line right here is proof that no one consulted me before starting this project, because I promise you, I would have assured every single one of them that incredible and uncontrollable flooding in the money pit wasn't just likely, but it should have been expected. And now we're getting exactly what should have been expected. That's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. No new episode of The Curse of Oak Island next week, so we're going to take a break for the holidays. Um, and uh, there is apparently a new drilling down with Maddie Blake all about Lot 5, so if you need to watch something Tuesday night, you got something there. I'll be going out of town, so I'm not going to be doing a, a um, podcast on that, but if anything important shows up on it, I'll, uh, I'll drop it into the next show. Don't forget, guys, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. Uh, if you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you want to help out the show, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating and a review there or anywhere else you get your shows. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who's done that. You can follow the show on Facebook. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Just put that in your search bar. And if you have any questions or comments to me, you can send them via email, uh, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Remember, folks, if you do send me a comment or a question uh, via email or even through a direct message, um, and I def email is definitely the better way, I, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want it answered on the podcast, just make a note of that for me. Okay, guys? Well, listen, have a great holiday. Enjoy next week off. It is definitely crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.